My talk is about what happened to the state-influenced market economies, the SMEs. Uh, France, Italy, and Spain confront the crisis, and I'm going to call this the good, the bad, and the ugly. So the big question for the SMEs, or what happened to France, Italy, and Spain, is sort of the question you might ask is, why am I putting them together at all? Because after all, in the varieties of capitalism literature, there are only two normative ideals. That should have been ideals, not ideas, but there are ideas as well. Liberal market economies and coordinated market economies. Your ideal type, Britain on the one side, Germany on the other. And in this, um, I, in the variety of capital, varieties of capitalism literature, France, Italy, and Spain are treated as outliers. Uh, if France is treated as all, at all, it's tr treated as, as sort of a one-off case. Italy, uh, Spain, Portugal, Greece are treated as southern Me Mediterraneans. They're often called mixed market economies, um, which means they are dysfunctional in very many, in, in all sorts of ways. They, you know, they, they, they don't, their components don't, um, coordinated appropriately, etc. So, you know, so you might ask, why is this the case? Because um, it's always better to have two than three or four or five. Uh, one is better, and of course, the whole convergence literature was focused on there's actually only one model, the neoliberal. And what you get with the rise of capitalism literature is an attempt to say, hey, guys, it's not just one, there are at least two. And the second one is coordinated market economies. And if you look back at the history, um, in the 80s up until actually the early 90s, actually there were three varieties. It was liberalism, corporatism, and statism in this literature. But in the 90s what happens is liberalism of course stays, and that's the neoliberal model. Corporatism actually also drops out, not just, not just statism, but corporatism, except the corporatists fight back. And they reinvent corporatism as coordinated market economies. But no one is fighting for statism for two reasons. One very obviously, obvious one is that these statist capitalist economies were in trouble. And they actually had to transform themselves. But the point is, they didn't simply go away, which is what the rise of capitalism literature says. They actually transformed themselves. Uh, and if you look at the literature today, subsequent to the sort of the big push on there are only two varieties, there's a wide range of scholars who actually see at least three varieties, whether they say there are only three or four or five. And I can just name names: uh, David Coates, Robert Boyer, Richard Whitley. Um, but you can, but then when you look at particular countries as well, you see that most of the scholars who look at these countries also see them as part of some different uh, variety. So uh, for France, it's post-dirigistes. We've got Ben here talking about that. Jonah Levy and others talk about it. Italy, it's po it's public neo-capitalism or dysfunctional state capitalism. Um, Spain, it's state-influenced mixed market economies, that's Sebastian Royo. Um, or uh, Molina and Rhodes talk about mixed market economies, but if you look closely at what they're saying, they simply don't want to be disloyal 
So they'll call it mixed market economies, but in fact, they identify a much stronger role for the state. So state-influenced market economies, how do we define this? Um, these are the former state capitalists or developmental states of France, Italy, Spain, but also South Korea, Taiwan. You could put Japan in there, maybe uh, it's a more questionable case. But basically, um, the state has, uh, there, this, there's greater influence in the state. The state actually has a defining role. Um, and there's a hierarchical, hierarchical logic of coordination with business and labor dependent upon state coordination, or dependent upon the state for coordination. I, mean, I can go into more detail here very briefly. It's adjustment is firm-led where business exercises autonomy, as in business strategy, investment, production, wage bargaining in France. Uh, but adjustment is still state-driven where neither business nor labor can exercise leadership. I think Ben is going to show, show that in financial market rules, um, but it's also labor regulations, pension systems, and wage bargaining. That's Spain and Italy in the 1990s, where you see a kind of state-led corporatism occurring. Um, but the state is also involved where the state sees the need to reshape the general economic environment to promote, to promote competitiveness. Because this is where you see massive intervention on mergers and acquisitions to prevent takeovers, um, for state aids. And again, much more. This is really defining by contrast to more liberal market economies or coordinated market economies, and we can discuss uh, later why. But in either case, uh, in any of these cases, what you see is the logic of interaction is one of hierarchical authority rather than the coordinated market economies joint decision between management, labor, and the state, or the liberal market economy unilateral action by autonomous firms. Okay, but it's important to see that this is not just, you know, we don't need to just talk about political, economic, institutional setting. You can also use a more constructivist or what I would call discursive institutionalist um, definition. It's about a state of mind and not just a state in action. And that state of mind, I think you can see, is what happened with the financial crisis, is that despite the fact that the state had been retreat in all of these countries and the state was essentially reforming itself across the 90s, or actually from the 80s on in um, most of these cases. But the minute there seemed to be a need for the, for, for, for the state, the state jumps back in and no one questions this. This is a state of mind, not just to the elites, but the publics as well. Very different from what we saw in the US, for example, or even in the UK. Um, so, so the state in this context has also been itself the object of reform. It impels reform. But of course, in that case, for these countries, what's especially important is the quality of political leadership. That really matters. And also the probity and, comp and, and competence of state officials. And here, if you look at these three countries, Italy's really in the deepest, deepest trouble in that regard. Um, all of the others are not in perfect shape either. Um, there's another piece to this, and that is, how do you explain change? Another problem with the varieties of capitalism, at least in its original form, is that by putting um, rational choice institutionalism, institutionalism together with a kind of traditional historical institutionalism focused on critical junctures and path dependence, very difficult to explain change. What I do here and what makes the most sense is you add kind of the revisionist historical institutionalist approach to incremental change, 
layering, drift, conversion, etc. But you also add the ideas and discourse and institutional context that I talk about for discursive institutionalism. And then, of course, everything is perfect. So what I'm going to do now is take us through and give you an, a very brief account of political economic institutions um, and interactions over time, and then move on to suggest that that's not enough. You can't just look at the political, econ political economic setting. One needs also to talk about political institutions, policies, politics. In fact, I'm not going to talk about that much because I don't have much time. Um, and then go on to the crisis, which I think is what you want to hear. So I'm not going to really give you much detail on this at all. Uh, but basically, we all know post-war France was a democratic village state capitalism. Italy was, I like this, I sort of coined the state-led by misdirection. So it's still state-led, but you know, it's, it's a disaster. Uh, and you had a paralyzed state. And Spanish, in Spain you have an authoritarian state capitalism that basically stunts growth and all the rest. And then each of these countries has a critical juncture. Note, I still think critical junctures are important, but then you also need to talk about um, incremental change. France's critical juncture really does start in the 1980s, and you move to a kind of state-enhancing dirigiste end to dirigisme. You end up with a kind of post-dirigiste state that Ben will tell us about. Um, so I won't, need not go on on France. Um, Italy, what you see is Italy's very late in doing anything. It's critical junctures in the 1990s when the system falls apart, the post-war system falls apart as the, with the fall of the Berlin Wall, you get the end of partitocrazia, um, uh, the party system explodes, and for this brief time, you get massive change. In the 1990s, pushing toward um, EMU, but privatization, deregulation. And what you see in terms of also business is that you get business, whereas in France, business coordination is largely informal uh, state-related networks and public-private partnership that Ben will tell you more about. Uh, in, Fran in, in Italy, it's more family-based uh, networks, business networks, which is also the case uh, in Spain. But there's a still kind, still kind of coordination. Um, okay. Um, and in Spain, critical juncture really late 70s through the early 80s as you get the end of Francoism and the move toward liberalization and all of that. Um, and what's interesting about Italy and Spain, by contrast with France, is France radically deregulates the labor markets, um, Italy and Spain actually create a state-led corporatism with social pacts that actually in Spain works, the state actually hinders some of this and, and they do this on their own uh, later on. But in Italy, it's only in the 90s and when Berlusconi comes in, again, it's all about the state and its importance. Berlusconi won't have any of it and in fact you get very little forward movement in terms of Okay, but again, political economics, institutions and interactions are not enough to really explain what happens in these three countries. It's about political institutions, policies and politics. And, and here the political institutions matter because one has to differentiate between France, simple polity where govern acti governing activity tends to be channeled through single authority, and Italy and Spain where you have compound polities where governing activity tends to be dispersed amongst multiple authorities and you have to negotiate. 
in compound colonies. You have to negotiate with business and labor, or you may get nowhere. Uh, or as in France, you can impose and hope they don't go out in the street. When they go out in the street, then you, maybe you pull back. But so it's a very different kind of logic of interaction here uh, in terms of the political institutions. And this also leads to a different way in which you try to legitimate your action. Uh, in France, it is about a communicative discourse to the general public. The political leaders really do have to explain, legitimate, or they're going to get people out in the street, and they're not going to get them off the street again. You can have a little bit in the street, but it can't last too long. Um, whereas in count compound Italy and Spain, you have to have a coordinated discourse amongst policy actors. You've got to negotiate. And in that negotiation, you have to be able to reach agreement, or you get nowhere doesn't mean that you can't also, or you don't also need a communicative discourse, but uh, the coordinators are not important. Okay, and in terms of policies and politics, again, you know, we're back to great, to critical junctures. 83 for France, great U-turn, but France has been a political crisis ever since. Ever since, I mean, whether it's Mitterrand or Chirac, etc. Um, there's a, you know, you could make, your, you could have your cognitive justification, why we need to do this because of globalization, etc. But the normative legitimation, the right didn't have it, the left didn't have it. And there's been an ongoing political crisis and also tremendous malaise in the public. Um, Italy, critical juncture, 1990s. And at this one single moment, you had technical governments in the center left actually able to, prevent, to promote tremendous change with a, with a successful set of discourses, one you know, that went all the way down in terms of labor, coordinated discourse, down to the rank and file about you know pension reform and all of that, um, and a uh, communicative discourse to the general public on the one hand about intergenerational solidarity, why we need to have this change that people really bought. At the same time, that there was a we've got to be part of EMU because it's a matter of national pride, especially if Spain is going to be in you know upstart country that only got in in the 80s, whereas we're a founding member. This all worked, but you know. Nothing's worked ever since, and Berlusconi, since Berlusconi 2000s, but even with the Prodi government, uh, not very good. Um, and it seems to me that I've lost Spain here. Oh well. Um, Spain, critical juncture, as I said much earlier, and very successful in terms of, because it was always, you know, this is about getting beyond the Francoist past. This is about democratization. This is about um, liberalization as well. And then with the EU, it's important not to forget that EU policies are tremendously important here. Um, and also attitudes toward the EU. Uh, so if you just look at um, Europhilia, uh, all of these three countries are actually very pro-Europe for a very long time. In the 90s, France quits talking about Europe uh, under Chirac with any, you know, with, with any kind of legitimation. And we know the disaster of the French referendum this is by contrast with the Spanish 2010 polls, but there was very low turnout on the, um, sorry, the 2010 referendum, uh, sorry, Spanish referendum. 2010 polls, I think, tell it all. Um, Spain and Italy, 33% think the EU is best able to take effect, effective action. The French, French know their best. You know, only 20, 22% think that the EU can take effective action for them. Uh, in terms of the financial crisis, and in terms of who needs more reforms, 91% of the Spans, Spaniards are convinced, which bodes well for the Zapatero reforms, austerity measures. 70, 
78% of the Italians, so they too see the need, only 58% of the French, so people in the street. I thought I would give you some, um, just to get a sense, okay, we're now into the crisis, you know, what are the indicators? What, what are the problems? If you look, if you look at this, um, we can see Italy is really uh, in terrible shape. Uh, France really, it, 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 minus 2.6% in terms of GDP growth, that was the lowest fall of any of the EU's Eurozone members. Italy was, was one of the worst. Um, if you see debt uh, as a percentage of GDP, Italy's in terrible shape. Spain's in great shape, but deficit Spain is off the charts, second only to Greece. Um, then if you look at relative unit labor costs, you can see Italy and Spain in the same bad shape. Unemployment Spain is the worst of the EU, just about at 20.3%. Temporary employment, again, Spain is the worst. Youth employment, uh, the highest. Uh, on female employment, Italy is not the lowest amount. At risk of poverty rates after social transfers, we see that Italy and Spain are pretty bad. But what you see is France is getting really well on all of these indicators, except perhaps the deficit. And then when you look at ease of doing business, France is not good, but you know, Italy is pretty bad. I think it's around Romania. Uh, corruption perception is below Romania. Um, 69% is good, but not great. Um, Spain, Italy is bad. Competitiveness, again, uh, France is not great. Spain is worse, but Italy is rock bottom. Um, so those are the indicators. Another, another uh, thing that I thought you'd like to know, this is for men, uh, foreign direct investment inflows. I don't know if you can see it very well, um, but clearly France is in great shape and Italy's going down. Spain is uh, better, you know, and this is, Spain's the upstart. Italy's the one that had been, you know, it was the post-war miracle and all of that. Um, and then if we look at foreign domestic, foreign direct investment outflow, outflows, what you see is France is doing really well. Its multinationals are out there. Uh, Italy is fading, among other things, its small and medium-sized enterprises are in really tough shape. Massive numbers of bankruptcies, comparatively. And look, Spain is, you know, is continuing to move, presumably to Latin America, et cetera. And maybe Santander is, uh, uh, but okay. Um, so, you know, it may all collapse. Okay, and then just to give you a sense of what's really serious are the growth in real wages, 61 through 2009. And France, what you see, you see, and this is um, from 1986 to So people are hurting. Um, and then you get this massive crisis. So again, France is not in great shape, but it's, you know, golden compared to Italy and Spain. Okay, so then in the crisis, the good, the bad, the ugly, France basically had a pretty good, pretty good crisis. Even the economists basically said that French are doing well, and there's the chief economist of the OECD who said, that actually in a crisis, the French model is probably 
the best. We didn't quite say it that way, but um, okay. So what did the French do during the crisis? You know, in fact, aside from the stimulus, not much. Sarkozy came in claiming he was going to do all sorts of great things, um, and the stimulus was pretty serious. But other than that, you know, he's got a rating by the Thomas More Institute of a 30% success rate on reforms. And the kinds of reforms he's done, I mean, the pension reform, he didn't even, he promised pension reform, didn't do anything like it. He had uh, promised a whole range of other reforms um, uh, in terms of a single labor contract, which was to solve the insider outsider problem, which is serious, although we know not as serious as in Spain. Um, drop that. A few meetings with the labor unions, which was significant because he actually brought them in to the Elysee and that had never happened, but you know, beyond that, nothing. Um, the paper has all sorts of examples. What's interesting, of course, is that uh, he, he had a rhetoric of, uh, for the campaign, I'm going to protect you in globalization. This is different from Ségolène Royal, I'm going to protect you against globalization. But what does it mean? It's a lot of talk. Uh, so he rails against French uh, car manufacturers, manufacturing in other countries and importing, you know, all of that. Uh, suggests, oh no, repatriate its operations. But financial regulatory reform? Uh-uh, very slow in coming. And uh, even the law to cap bankers' bonuses for 2009 happens only once he's embarrassed uh, by BNP Paribas' billion euro bonuses to traders. And then, okay, got to do something. Um, but then, of course, austerity. So 2010, oh, I should say one thing, though, where, uh, where France is good is this supranational leadership. Uh, it's Sarkozy who's out there in the 2008 crisis and say, we've got to do something. He gets the Eurozone leaders together, etc. cetera. Um, so that's, I, that's, that's very important. Um, but uh, I have zero minutes, so I'm gonna, but I will finish this. Um, in any case, there is supranational leadership, but Italy, pretty bad crisis in here. There is no leadership at all. Berlusconi is spending his time going to birthday parties of 17-year-olds, while Sarko is uh, making a big thing and is leading. Um, domestic policy response, you know, despite the fact you looked at those figures, Italy was really hurting. There was almost nothing done, except for a little bit of economic nationalism with regard to Italia. There's a major political crisis on the, on the right, but the left is totally worthless. The Partito Democratico is worthless. I should say, I hadn't mentioned this, but in France, the PS is equally worthless, except it's beginning to come back. Um, but do they have an electable leader? Not sure. Um, Spain, a downright ugly crisis. Uh, Zapatero had a very slow response to crisis. And here we've got to also talk about political institutions. Certainly in his second mandate, he didn't have uh, a majority. So very hard to pass things. He finally did when the austerity budget, you know, when he has to impose austerity because basically the sovereign debt crisis has migrated from Greece to Spain. He's got to do something. He wins by one vote uh, to impose very serious budgetary austerity. Um, and this is from the sovereign debt crisis. Uh, and I would want to say, you know, sort of one last thing about the crisis and the good, the bad, and the ugly, you know, what they also share 
uh, is a reluctance to follow the EU and German push to austerity. This is not the way you do things if you're an SME. I think not because it's, well, yeah, because these SMEs also tend to be much more focused on neo-Keynesianism. Whether this is a characteristic of the SME or not, I don't think so. But um, I think I better leave it at that. Thank you.